This episode of the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast is sponsored by Succession. For your awards consideration, Max presents the Emmy award-winning HBO original series, Succession. Truly, the very best of luck to the person whose job it is to pull Emmy clips for all of the actors on this show. It's an embarrassment of riches. Speaking of, as power struggles ensue, the Roy family weighs up a future where their cultural and political weight is severely curtailed. Do not miss the series that IndieWire calls the end-all, be-all of television. This show is not for tears. All the bells say you can watch it with open eyes because nobody is ever missing. Emmy eligible for outstanding drama series in all other categories. Succession is streaming now on Max. Hi, y'all. Welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Sarah Shackett. I'm a writer over at IndieWire, and all the way back in April, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Craig Mazin, who you true podcast heads have probably been listening to on script notes for quite some time. Uh, but he is, of course, also the co-creator of the HBO series The Last of Us, based on the Naughty Dog video game. I give that timestamp as a bit of a disclaimer, uh, because April was obviously before the beginning of the writer's strike, so this uh, interview does not represent Craig doing any new press since the strike. Uh, And we kind of knew that this episode would be a a little bit of a story in a bottle from the past that we would discover in the middle of a a rockier future, much like The Last of Us itself. I really, really loved getting to hear Craig talk about all of the things he is so smart about, story, intention, perspective, tone, audience awareness. Uh, But we also really got into the visual language of the series as well and how it supports the characters in the world of the show. Also, I am a giant The Last of Us video game nerd, so I did ask some questions about adapting the game, and you're all just gonna have to deal with that, but I think those answers are fun and interesting too, so please enjoy this conversation with Craig Mazin. So the first bullet point that I have says Ashley Johnson Appreciation Corner. And and also the Troy Baker Appreciation Corner too. Let's be fair. But as as someone who is such a huge fan of the games, first of all, um, the Last of Us games, I'm curious if there was some sort of aspect of the characters or of the the world of the show that you got from playing the games that you wouldn't have necessarily picked up if you had been reading like a short story version well you are calling for conjecture but i will conject (laughs) i I will because i i did play the game so i never had the opportunity to experience the story the way some people do i mean some people watch playthroughs um of actual people playing like say on twitch streams or some people watch playthroughs that have been edited uh for youtube you know but i did experience it for the first time as as God intended, or at least as Neil Druckmann did, which is playing the game. And I do think that there is a level of attention um, that you pay when you're playing that is different than when you're watching like a playthrough. Um, And there's also an opportunity to look at the things you want to look at. If you get to a place where you want to just take a moment and look around, assuming you're not being, you know, chased, you can't. And that is an interesting thing. Sometimes you could just stop. And where those moments were, where I chose to stop and look around or think, were a reflection of my experience playing it and a reflection of the moments that I think meant something to me. 
So in that regard, I think, yeah, there's got to be a difference. There has to be a difference. But it's my conjecture. <laughs> that's that's fair enough. Um, and I feel like, you know, because it's um, a game that very famously, uh, if you want to finish it, you have to do what Joel does. Um, and it doesn't quite have, you know, the branching endings the way something like a Mass Effect would. Right. Those moments where you can choose to stop um, are are so important. And I have to imagine kind of informed, like, the visual language that you guys would end up going with for the series. So one of the things that you do get to experience when you're playing is control over the eyes. You get to control what Joel is looking at. Therefore, you're controlling what you see. And you can look, there are speed runs, obviously, where people don't really care. But sometimes you just want to stare at things. And I'm definitely the kind of player that tries to take advantage of all the little things that Naughty Dog leaves for you to look at, whether they're interesting textures or bits of architecture or notes or discarded material. I, you know, the there's a wonderful moment in the second game and it's optional essentially because it just depends on how thorough you are about going through things, but you're going through some apartments and you find a table where there had been a D&D game that has been just left <laughs> and has been left for 20 years because the people who were playing fled. Um, and that kind of attention to detail. And I remember thinking like it was gorgeous. And then if you go into one of the bedrooms in that apartment, one of the bedrooms has a bunch of minifigures. And it's like, okay, that was the guy that really dug it. And I love stuff like that. And the, the obsession with detail and the general phil philosophical belief that you should never leave a blank space, even if people won't see it, is something that we aspire to with the show. Um, where obviously we are directing the camera around, but a lot of times we're directing it, at least finally in editing. But we want to be able to say, okay, we don't. It's it's not like we have to look here or here because there was nothing over there when we were pointing the camera there. We try and fill in as much as we can so that later, wherever angle we choose, we know there's stuff, and that if people really look closely, they will they will appreciate little things. Yeah, I got the chance to to talk to um, one of the cinematographers, Ksenia Sereda who really talked about like that layering being important, not just in the production design, but like in lens choice, in composition, so that you always have the characters, but always can sort of see them in context and that telling the story. That is absolutely true. And Ksenia's style of shooting almost demands that kind of layering because she's incredibly good at orchestrating the dance of multiple camera people. She herself is a great camera operator, which is not always true for cinematographers. And then you have this kind of rotating dance going on so that they're not in each other's shot. And therefore, you need to fill in depth and space in so many different directions. I also like giving the actors real spaces and things to look at. The more there is that's real, the easier it is for them to just step into their characters. There's like, a, I think, a finite amount of make-believe that a human is capable of. I would like to eliminate as much requirement of make-believe as I can so that they can put all of their make-believe into themselves and their relationships. And so that is part and parcel with how we do things. I'm a big believer that 
something in the background should be moving. I, I, I just, to just give a sense of life, you know? Yeah. And all the better if that, that something can be an infected. Yes, again. Speaking of, of one of the things that, that blew me away watching the show is just like, what is the magical incantation or like the secret safe that you found for HBO to give you like a tank for episode two that you don't use again? Like this show builds out entire cul-de-sacs, like a, a Massachusetts town just for Nick Offerman and Murray Bartlett. The amount of resources and the amount of time you are able to devote to them feel extraordinary on this show. Well, we're just getting started, you know, because I think we're, you know, our ambition is growing. Well, one of the nice things about HBO is that they they back their showrunners, you know, and I'm not saying that we didn't have some good old fashioned knockdown drag out arguments about the budget early on. We did. But then we land on something that is acceptable that we say we can make the show. It was the same thing with Chernobyl, by the way, um, obviously on a much lower scale because Chernobyl cost a fraction of what The Last of Us cost. But, you know, it was sort of like, look, this is what we need, bare minimum, to make the show that we would be proud to have out there and that you would be proud to have out there. And you negotiate until both sides feel okay. And there is always a number, right? I, I, well, I take it back. There, there have been times, I think, where people just said, look, we can't do this for less than this. And the company's like, we don't, we can't. So, okay, we go our separate ways. But so far, so good with us. I think they knew going in because we wrote a very thorough outline. When I say very thorough, I mean it was like 160 pages of just everything. So they understood this is a road trip and we don't go backwards. <laughs> it's it's a directional arrow and we don't go backwards and therefore we will be building and burning some stuff. Because you're right, normally in television production, if you build a quarantine zone, your season takes place in the quarantine zone. You know, because you want to amortize the value of those sets in that build. And we just don't. And they were really great about that. And it's going to be a little different for, for the next seasons. But the scope and scale of what we're, we're contemplating, again, will be, I think, quite a bit increased. That's excellent. People can play play part two and be excited the way that I'm excited. I'm not going to talk about it here. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, what I would like to talk about is in, you know, you sort of set us on on that journey with the first episode, which was the first episode of television you directed. Yeah. Um, and so I'm curious, both the jump from features to TV, how was that? And also, what were the things visually that you were trying to sort of set in, in, in motion for the rest of the series? Well, there's... A natural extension, I think, to directing if you're show running. It's not that every showrunner should be or can be a director, but you're doing so much of of the planning work, uh, so much of the um, preparation and all these choices that directors and features will make, casting and costumes and production design and palette and who's going to be the DP and how you're going to... So, so much of that gets done by you that it, it is kind of a natural extension. Then the question is, do you have a sense of how to shoot a scene and, and shoot it in such a way that when it's edit, edited, you have the material you want and need? Do you have a concept of what matters, what is important, what isn't important? Do you know how to talk to and work with actors? 
if that happens, then okay, you've got a fighting chance. I think for me, the things that were important to establish right off the bat in the first episode were hyper-realism more than anything and a certain kind of handheld fluidity that would allow us to feel immersed and also feel connected to the story in a way that was tense. I think that the more the more the camera moves around in camera-ish ways, the more the camera is positioned in a place that a human eye wouldn't be, the more it feels like it's being presented. And I don't want to present anything. I want people to feel like they're in it. That's how Johan Rank and I thought about Chernobyl. We just wanted everyone to always feel like they were right next to the person as part of it, immersed. And that was our way of, for this in particular, connecting back to the immersion of the game. So I think a lot of times what happens when people are adapting video games is they, they try and adapt the gameplay, but it's not the gameplay that immerses you. I don't think, I think it's just the immediacy of the environment and your position in it. And the way to simulate that, I think through a passive process, like watching television is in part to shoot it in a way that feels non-presentational, non-stylized, bare bones in the sense of like grittiness and reality. So we spend all this money to make stuff that looks like what the world would look like and not to fantasize, romanticize, hyper-realize, none of that stuff at least for me and for Neil, does, none of that stuff would make sense given what we're trying to achieve. It's interesting that you talk about that immersion because I th feel like you are incredibly with the characters in the series. And yet there is also this, I felt this in Chernobyl too, this sort of overall sense of design and impending doom. Um, that is also <laughs> present in the in the environment. Yeah. Um, that's that that is also part of what makes um, what makes the action so compelling. But one of the things I really loved about Last of Us was that unlike other series that are are sort of playing in that dystopic or post post apocalyptic um, palette, the show doesn't look super dark or drab or dreary. And I I I would love to hear you talk a little bit about some of the aesthetic uh, and, and design choices that, that kind of went into the color of the world. Part of it, again, goes to this sense of hyper-realism. And in reality, we don't spend much time in the dark. We sleep in the dark. If we're in the dark otherwise, and we're not watching a movie or something, we turn the light on. <laughs> and if there are no lights, we either make our own with flashlights or torches or lamps or we go outside if it's day i just don't get i think there is a stylized choice that some filmmakers make to drench everything in darkness because it is moody or it but sometimes i just laugh because i'm like why don't they just open just move the curtain to the left mm -hmm. you'll why do they not want do they all have like photophobia like what's going on so I'm kind of old fashioned that I like to see things. 
<laughs> it's like one of my weird things that I like to see things, you know. Um, it's trickier when you're doing night scenes because you don't want to end up bathing everything in that fake blue moonlight, but you also want to be able to see things. So we, we use a lot of techniques, um, and I rely on our, uh, cinematographers to help, but they all understand the point. The part of it is, okay, here's what we're going to do. And oftentimes what we will do is expose things or not expose, light things a bit more than we would maybe want them to be lit on the show. And then later, when we're working with our colorist and, and, and that process, we can then lower it down in areas where we want to kind of create a little bit more of that dark richness and then keep it perhaps on a little section where we want to see faces. So we have interesting challenges and we try as best we can to, to think about where we're going in the end. We don't need to capture that world perfectly in camera right now, as long as we know the key is you have to have the information, you know, and they talk about like capturing information, especially we all shoot digitally now, essentially. So we have somebody sitting in, in the, uh, the DIT tent, the digital information technician tent. I don't think the T stands for tent. So it's not like ATM machine. I, I I'm pretty sure about that. So he's in the DIT tent and his job is basically to say, yeah, you're good. You, the information is there. Then we can fine tune, but to me, seeing things is important because I only connect to relationships. This is just how I function when I watch things. I connect to relationships. So, for instance, in a scene like in the second episode, Joel and Ellie and Tess go into the museum and they have an encounter with the clickers. They're in a pretty dark space. It's not purely dark. We made a choice that the windows had been boarded up but some uh, light leak is happening. So that helps to create a little bit of oomph, you know? Then they have their flashlights. And then, of course, there are these magic light sources that you don't even perceive but are there to help. But we use darkness there, I think, to great advantage without losing the faces and the connection between the eyes because that's what matters more. I just have never in my life of watching things ever said, I'm so glad this is dark. <laughs> never. Yeah. Never. I, I'm glad that there's suspense. I'm glad there's mystery. But if I can't see what a person is thinking or feeling, and if I can't see the reaction to another person, then I'm losing what matters the most because of some kind of cinematographic or directorial fiat that I just don't, I personally don't subscribe to. I mean, to me, it's just part of being real. And the weird thing is, of course, all the real that we're making is fake. So we're faking real, but there is an art to faking real. It's like we're forge we're forgers and we're forging reality. Absolutely. Everything is is artificial and looks natural. Um, it's the idea. Yeah. I, I would love to to sort of glom onto uh, relationships for a moment because it feels like both of the key uh departures from from the video game in terms of um bill and frank's relationship and then who is sort of moving around in kansas city not pittsburgh are important in terms of how you are teaching the audience to understand uh joel and ellie's relationship and so i would love to sort of hear about kind of those adaptation choices and and where they came from well they they really did come from this core theme 
which centers on the treachery of love. And we don't shy away from showing how positive and beautiful love is. It is the most positive and beautiful emotion we're capable of. It is the, mo the emotion that leads to new life and the nurturing of new life and the protection of life. Uh, it also leads to moments of beautiful sacrifice. So love is this incredibly powerful and noble thing. Uh, love also has a destructive component. It can very easily turn into anger and violence. It can turn into protectionism. It can turn into tribalism, otherism, racism, xenophobia. There's a lot of fear that love creates. And we wanted to show as best we could the true story of that laid out across this tale. And when it came to Bill and Frank, I just, you know, I remember saying to Neil, I feel like we have an opportunity here to do more because Bill in the game, you, you can't leave the perspective of Joel or in one section, Ellie, but you're always, you're nailed in, right? Like that's your perspective. You can't shift perspectives. We can, and we have to. And so in the game, you meet Bill, he's grouchy and he's pissed off. He refers to a former partner. Then your relationship with him is really pegged to um, gameplay. Okay, we've got to get through a school. We've got to get through uh, a yard. We have to you know, do these following things, a neighborhood, and we have to avoid all these infected while we're doing it. And we, I just felt like, okay, we've had two episodes that are pretty intense. Both episodes have infected people. Both episodes have violence and spills and chills and thrills. And it feels like maybe we could give everybody a breather because it's going to start up again pretty soon. Uh, as it turns out, it was no kind of breather at all because, because emotionally it was maybe the most punishing episode we had, but also I think the most positive because I, what I wanted to do was say, let's, let's imagine what that story is of Bill and Frank untethered from the game and use it to actually show the passage of time between outbreak date and now, because I think that's a useful thing for people to experience, but to experience it through a relationship. And then the question is, how can we explore the duality of love here? And in doing so, even though they end up dying, they die on their own terms and they're old and they're, and it's their choice. They don't die violently. They don't lose. They win. No, they get the happy ending. That is for sure. They get the happy ending. And we needed to establish that a happy ending was possible, especially for that moment, because that's the moment where some people said like, okay, it was a side trip and it didn't impact the story. And I just think, did you miss the part where Bill left this letter for Joel that is directly connected to why he says he's going to take Ellie with him? Because that's why he takes Ellie with him. If there's no note, it's over. He goes back home and he turns her over to somebody and he says, kid, good luck. Right? And now I have to figure out how to move on without Tess. But Bill's letter to him, which, by the way, was only possible for Bill to write because of his relationship with Frank. Mm -hmm. Bill's letter said, here's the deal with you and me. Here's why we exist. It took me a long time to figure it out, but I finally figured it out. Guys like me and guys like you exist to protect the people we love. And that's why we're here on the planet. 
period, the end. We have no other use, but that is an important use for us. So protect Tess. <laughs> and what we know is she's already gone, but there's somebody new. And that's why he makes the choice he makes. That all feeds into Joel. And then you can see the, the impact of what could be the most positive kind of love. But the question is, what happens if that love goes too far? What if it just runs away? What if you lose the handle on it and you can't regulate it? And that's the exploration that we then see in the next new relationship, which is the story of Kathleen, where her love for her brother, who was basically Jesus, pretty much, has poisoned her blood to the extent that she cannot stop herself from avenging him. She doesn't know how. Even if on some level she knows it's wrong, she can't stop. She is not in control of the depth and profundity of her own love and the grief that love caused. Because again, one of the downsides of love is it rips our heart out when the people we love die. And she says something in to Henry when they finally do confront each other that Joel hears and that is obviously connected to where this all goes, which is saying to Henry in terms of what he did to save his own brother, which is to sacrifice her brother, did you think that he, meaning your brother, did you think he was worth everything? <laughs> you know, because the thing is, that is how we feel. Why should I feel like my child's life is more important than your child's life? We do. Everyone does. But if you think about it for even more than a second or two, you got to wonder why. <laughs> like, is that true? Is how many lives would my kid's life worth be worth? Five, ten, thousand, a million? This philosophical problem goes right to the heart of the irrationality of love. And I think love has gotten too much of a free ride in literature <laughs> and, <laughs> and in storytelling. I think it needs to be, you know, looked at a little bit more provocatively than that. And in extremis. Well, that is kind of how we find these provocative positions. So we create an extremis through external problems like fungal monsters and resource depletion and past trauma. But I guess that's kind of how drama functions. It's like a vaccine. It is a weakened form of something that we might actually have to contend with for real. So we, it helps us process some of the difficulty of our own emotions and our own fears. I love you referring to drama as a vaccine. Uh, a for, th for this series, this is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but thinking about that and thinking about um, the ways in which we can sort of be blinded by our, our loving relationships and, and not see um, hurt that we project to other people who also have loving relationships. I'm curious about sort of thinking about that, that balance of violence in terms of structuring the season of like, okay, we have two sort of intense episodes that have these sequences that seem ripped out of the video game episode three, we need a breather. Like how do you, how do you think about the, the balance of 
being realistic to a world that has um, the cordyceps fungus um, and also the the larger storytelling goals that you have. Well, when you're writing these things and it's all it all happens in the writing, all those decisions, you have to um, advocate for yourself as an artist while also advocating for the audience as an audience. Because there are things sometimes that you want to do, but the audience is real and they have feelings and emotions too. And so much of what we do is trying to figure out how to have an intention and then communicate that intention so that it is received as that intention. And it doesn't always work that way. I think for all the years that I worked in comedy, I certainly sharpened my awareness of the audience and how important they were and how important it was to advocate for them. And in drama, that is, it, there's more flexibility there, um, but it's still there. So I think about them all the time. And to the extent that I might overprotect them or underprotect them, I am imperfect. But, but the impulse to challenge them, but also give them breathers is there. It's a little bit like, you know, it's like a trainer who knows when to push you and who knows when to back off. So it's a little bit like that. Like, and we know like, okay, when we push them really far, um, when Henry has to kill Sam and then kill himself, there's just this understanding in our bellies that the next episode cannot do that that way that it has to do something else. It has to acknowledge at this point that a wound has occurred and that wound has created an echo and a problem that needs to be addressed. Um, but it's not a mistake that after this brief reminder um, of what happened when we begin episode six, that the next scene is the most overtly comic scene in the entire series. People need a break. And they need to know the time has passed. They need to understand that Joel and Ellie have gotten over the immediate morning state so that they can live. But then a few scenes later, you see they're not over it. They're still thinking about it. At least Ellie is. And then many scenes later in that episode, you realize so is Joel. That he hasn't stopped thinking about it. But it's about processing that and then making decisions based on your own fear as a result of those things. That's really part of what we are supposed to do is think about when you go full throttle and what the results are and how people will feel and then treat them that other way. And it's the same thing with the infected that we, if we do too much, they become a little bit just uh, of an obstacle as opposed to this, the kind of ultimate fear. Yeah. And some people thought that we didn't do enough, and I understand that. But we did what we thought was correct. And that's exactly how we're going to guide our hands to come. You know, um, I always want the infected to be special. When they show up, I want it to mean something. It's, it's a rare, like, I don't expect to make too many scenes where it's just like, oh, there's some infected here. Let's just kill them. It's a bloater. Ah. Yeah. And yeah, and and we didn't meet anything that escalated it. Yes. Um nothing happened that would impacted our relationships or anything like that. It it has to be special. So part of the challenge for us is just making sure that those moments are special and 
honestly, leave them wanting more. I'm okay with that. <laughs> I'm okay with that. A great answer. I, I'm curious, given that there's just so much that has to be worked out in the scripting stage. Are you still discovering stuff in post? What is the edit process like? Are you moving scenes around? Are you just trying to find the right perspective? Like what, how do you dive into that? It's less about moving scenes around. You occasionally will shuffle a couple here and there, but it's pretty rare. I, I try and write as best I can with a very directed flow and connected transitions so that it's not as simple as just if everything's a kind of a fungible modular patchwork, it, then it probably wasn't correctly put together in the first place. But what you do find in editorial is where the most impact is for certain things. Like I'm a big believer that the times when things are most impactful to me is when I see somebody listening and being affected. So there are times where someone is delivering a very meaningful speech and I will often move away from them to see who's listening to them more than maybe other people would because seeing another person moved by that makes it more meaningful. It makes it less about a presentation and more about an experience. So there are a lot of choices like that, that happen. And then there's just questions of pacing and some sort of narrativization of chaos. So for instance, the big scene in the cul-de-sac where all the infected come out of the ground, you know, we shot for three weeks of nights and we have a lot of footage, but we have to boil it down and create a spine of a narrative through it. And you can go through shot by shot and make a little statement about what it is and you will get a tiny little story. This happens, so she goes here. He sees that, he does this. She looks at him, she goes here. And da, 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 da. And then around that chaos, you begin to understand why where people are following. And when they're following is Joel and Ellie. There's a relationship story happening in the middle of all of that that holds it all together. So editorially, we just try to refine what the intention of the script was. And it's my favorite part of the process because first of all, it's very civilized compared to production. Production <laughs> is a 12 hour day minimum and you are standing out there freezing and tired and uh, hungry and all that. Um, and then editorial, roll in around 1030, you sit down on a nice couch, have a discussion, you know, have some dinner. <laughs> you know, it's, it's much nicer. Certainly than three weeks of night shoots. Three weeks of night shoots uh, is not anything I would recommend. You, you like your mind adjusts to it in terms of your circadian rhythm. Like you become somebody that has a night job. Okay, it's fine. You, you sleep during the day. You work at night. You can do it. But there's something that just happens mentally to you. It's just you're like, this isn't right. Something's wrong. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't feel good. <laughs> it just feels, the world feels dark. I think about the, the episode in the, in the last season of Game of Thrones that was, I think they shot 11 weeks of night. I just, I, I would not have been able to function. I just don't know how you survive something like that. It's just brutal. So I love that you're sort of, especially for Ellie as a character, looking for her listening and for people listening generally. Um, that's super cool. Yeah, seeing seeing their faces. Some of the best moments are just seeing reactions. I love it. 
I want to ask you about the the hospital sequence because that is that is a sequence that does feel a little bit more presented to us. Yes. And a little bit you know appropriately tragic. And so I'm curious uh about sort of was that something that came together in the edit or yes um to an extent. I mean, we always intended that that would actually be presentational. That because what we wanted the audience to feel there was a dissociation from reality because Joel is dissociating. Those people aren't people to him anymore. Nothing is, nothing matters. Whether it's a door or a human being, they need to be gotten through because he's going to do one simple thing, which is the one thing he wasn't able to do 20 years ago. And that is save this little girl. And to create that sense of dissociation, uh, you know, we wrote a scene that was it just in the description was kind of heavy on sound and the way sound would get muted and sometimes get really vivid and that we would be looking at not necessarily, it wouldn't be so much of like an, a regular action sequence. It, you would see little bits of strange things like a, a, you know, feet for a while, like shoes, you know, or, and that everything would be impressionistic that, that, Joel would get surprised. We would get surprised by what's happening. And when we were in the edit, it was, it was feeling pretty traditional. It was feeling kind of traditional and we had tried lots of things. Um, and it was keeping me up at night because it, it was, it was fine. It was fine. It just, it didn't deliver that intention to me of, of dissociation and tragedy, because what you're watching is somebody lose themselves to an extent. They are giving something away permanently to preserve another thing. And I was in my car driving home. And as I often did, I would just start playing the soundtrack from the first game and Gustavo Santelage's music. And there's all these great things that are married to moments like that, including in the game, there's this awesome track that's married to you walking around killing fireflies on your way to rescue Ellie. And it's very percussive and it's very dark and dong, dong, dong. And it was awesome in the game. But then I just got towards the end and there's this, the most beautiful rendition of this theme all gone that starts with a single cello note and grows into this funereal lamentation. And I went back to uh, our editor. Our editor on that episode was Tim Good. And I said, well, this is a crazy idea. <laughs> but just start over. Don't, don't take this music and put it underneath this. Take this music, lay it out, and then start again and see what happens just with this feeling and what emerged was something that we all thought delivered the intention. It made it different and it, it connected you to the terrible sadness of what he was doing as opposed to, and what's interesting about that theme is in the game, it's what plays under after you save Ellie. And you're walking, because in the game, once you save her and you're leaving, the game lets you go. 
<laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's scary because it seems like people are still there. They are. They're trying to get you. But the game lets you go. And underneath, it is this commentary of this sad beauty. So it was just about taking that and moving it in front of it. Right. And I'm, I'm actually, I think we're all proud of that decision. I think it worked really well. Yeah, absolutely. For, you know, as much as the, the actual ending of the series mirrors the game, like almost shot for shot, that choice feels like it is, it is sort of capitalizing on what the negative lesson we see from Kathleen and, and, uh, from from Bill and Frank to a certain extent of just like the loss of agency that everyone has in that moment. The people Joel kills, Joel, Ellie, like all of it. Um, it's so cool that that's just score. Yeah, it's a great way of putting it. It is. It's a loss of agency because even though Joel seems like he's the one person making decisions, he's not. And that's a point also when you play the game where you might feel like you're making decisions, but you're not. And and that's. And and then that extends into the, the the surgical room where the game sort of famously forces you to make a decision, and that loss of agency to me is what happens when love takes over, a little bit like when I don't know a fungus takes over, you're not you anymore. You're now being driven by something else that supersedes your morality, your rationality, your agency. And it's, it's so sad to me. It's just sad. Yeah. Well, to make sure we end on not a sad note. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, that was brilliant. But uh, I don't know how to do that. But sure, go ahead. Well, I'm, I, 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 I read somewhere that you, you said that you've in, in making the the first season of the show, you, you went from like a, a five percent mastery of filmmaking to like a twelve percent mastery of filmmaking or something, and so I'm curious, like, what that jump was and sort of where it was. Well, there are a lot of nuts and bolts that just with experience you can say, ah, I can avoid certain mistakes. Sometimes the hardest thing is knowing how to compromise because you're forced to compromise constantly. Mm. So the question is, when, where? What is your goal? Is your goal to always solve the problem that's handed to you? Because sometimes the solution to the problem that's handed to you is I'm not doing any of those choices. This is important to me. I want to do this this way. Right. But other times you just have to know like, all right, yeah, let's, let's compromise here. So part of it is just the experience of figuring out that give and take. And then some of it is psychological lessons. You know, like there's this, Lengthy scene in the first episode where Joel and Tess confront Marlene and Kim and Ellie is there in between them. And there's this very expository scene, but also a bargaining scene, a negotiating scene that essentially sets everything in order. It is the, in that hallway, the plot is created and put into motion. And the, you know, the first you generally start by shooting things wide and then you get closer and closer and closer. And so we're in this big wide shot of the scene and these early takes when you have this big wide shot and they're very, and people are just standing and talking to each other and saying a lot of exposition, you know, I'm sitting there as the director going, well, I'm very bad at this. <laughs> this is, I'm a bad writer and I'm a bad director and I'm a bad showrunner and I'm in trouble. And the truth is, 
I wasn't. And I, and I remember, you know, the, the people around me who are supporting me, my production partner and my script supervisor and my AD, they're like, it's a wide shot. We're just getting started. <laughs> Take nice breaths. It'll come together. So, you know, over the, I think we shot that scene over the course of a day and a half, so many different eye lines. And I was like obsessed with making sure I got all of them because again, I'm all about relationships. Right. Right. So like, I want to know when Ellie looks at her knife, I want to see that from the knife's point of view. And I want to see her point of view of the knife. I want to see Joel's point of view of the knife. I want to see Joel's point of view of her and backwards and every different permutation shooting all of these angles and then just turning it over and saying, God, I hope I did not screw that up. I don't think I did, but I'm scared. And then Tim Good, who was also editing that episode, showed me his assembly of it. Um, and it was awesome. <laughs> it's like, I have learned a lesson. Uh, because so much of what it's about is pace and perspective. And he was able to just, he did it, right? Like yeah. he, what he did. So one of the things you learn is you create something in writing which in your mind is perfect. Then to make it, you have to take it like it's a perfect picture and start minting little jigsaw puzzle pieces. And then you hand all those pieces over to an editor that hopefully when he puts it back together, it doesn't not resemble the, the script. It, it, it's like, ah, yes, even though it's gone through this weird process, we've come back to what the intention was of the script. And so... Some of those things I think are really helpful to just keep in mind. It's these are just the lessons of experience, um, but it's not false humility. It, it really is like everybody that makes things needs to remain a student. They, I think the moment you say, you know, I've arrived, <laughs> that's the moment you've left. <laughs> you know, that's that's just keep learning. Somebody, there's always somebody that has something to teach you. Always. Try and get better. Try and get better. Try and get better. No, it's a, it's a bad sign when the fear goes away, for sure. I would say so. And I, <laughs> I don't seem to be in any uh, danger of that anytime soon. Amazing. Craig, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Those are great questions. I appreciate it too.